The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. That is the last time we'll be watching that video because this is the last week of our series going through the book of James. We called it Kinetic because we're looking. James is a book that talks about what faith looks like when it's put in motion, what faith looks like when it's actually activated in our lives. And on that note, I just want to say... This is a cool weekend for me because normally, as you guys know, I'm up here playing guitar and singing, and I got to step away from that this morning, and I just had an incredible first three songs of the service, looking around, and as our body grows and we get to know each other, like watching you guys worship and watching our church worship is an amazing, amazing thing, and thank you, Andy and the team, for leading us so well, Um, just phenomenal, and I love worshiping with you guys. It's a joy. Um, Yeah, amen, yeah. I love that we've adopted the clap at Story City. It's a good thing. It's, our, it's like, it's our close, we're fringing towards like exploring the space a little bit. Anyway, so end of James. James is going to hammer home this morning on the exact same thought that we started on several weeks ago when we started this series, and that is how we walk through trials. And specifically this time, he started in verse, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and he says, Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many ta- kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance, so it's shaping your character. And this morning, he's going get to get at the same topic, but he's going to do it in a way where he's going to give us these special resources that we carry as believers that actually empower us through hardships and through trials. And so let's look at our text for the morning. It's a long one. I'm going to warn you before we read it. And I just want to say it's a long text, and there's a lot here. And for the sake of sparing you guys from an hour and a half long sermon, we're going to pick and choose our spots a little bit in the text this morning. But that is not to do. We are a church that believes firmly in the inerrancy and power of Scripture, that it is God-breathed, that it is perfect, and then every word in Scripture has something to say and shape our lives. So we are not skipping over anything because we don't believe it. I just want to say uh, it's a large chunk of Scripture, and we're going to We're going to take what we can in the time we have allotted. So let's read this. James chapter 5, verse 7 through 20. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. 
He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you in prayer from a text that's on prayer. And I just want to ask you to be with us for the rest of this morning. I lean into the promise that you are with us. Help us to align our hearts to submit to what your word would have for us. We are a group of people that need your word more than we know and more than we will ever know. Your word is life. Your word is breath to us this morning. And your word is able to transform and awaken the hardest heart in this room. So be with us now. Speak by your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we get to the real meat of this text this morning, I just want to remind us a little bit on the context of what's going on in James, who he's writing to. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to a church of Jews that had recently accepted Jesus as their Messiah and God. And they were scattered in what is commonly known as the dispersion or the diaspora. They're forced from their homes and their homelands to avoid great persecution. And here they are. They've been forced out of their homelands, and they get into these new places. They're out of Palestine now. And again, they're met with persecution. Again, they're met with hardship. Again, they're met with oppression. And so James is writing to this church, and he's saying, take heart. You're facing trials. You're facing stress. But don't lose hope. And Craig, in a great sermon last week, keyed us in a little bit on the specifics of what this persecution looked like. We saw it earlier in the book in chapter 2, verses 6. James wrote, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? So these people are being drugged into court unjustly. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So their God and their faith is being mocked and ridiculed. And then again in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, that Craig preached last week, he says, Look, And he's talking to these oppressive people that are oppressing the church. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one. So we can infer to this either directly or indirectly. These people are being literally oppressed through injustice, not getting paid what they deserve for their work with no ability to defend themselves. They're literally in some way being murdered by the culture at large. And James writes to this church with one goal as he closes his letter down. And it's the goal I have for us this morning as well. He writes to encourage and strengthen a people that are facing suffering and hardship. To bring comfort and encouragement. So our church is not being systematically oppressed this morning. Praise God. We are in a free country. We're gathered freely. We have no fear. But I want to say this. A a quote um, that has always struck me anytime I've heard it is this. Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And you know, I think that quote is true. I think that's why it strikes my heart. I think it reflects the reality that we live in a fallen world, a sin-infested world, and we all, in many ways, face struggles and constant trials. And I think that there's a lot of us in this room this morning, a few of us probably, that are suffering acutely. Like we are in the fire right now. We are in the flames, be it sickness, financial trouble, being forced out of LA because we can't afford whatever it is. We are in it right now and we need a word of encouragement. Others of us this morning, we walk in and the reality of our suffering is, you know, we are, we're struggling, we're tired, we're weary. 
Life is hard. Kids are hard. Marriage is hard. Work is hard. Um, You know, we all in this place are facing some sort of battle. And God's word and James this morning wants to give us kindness. He wants to give us the gift of kindness. He wants to pull us close and say, take heart. God is with you. The realities that you have right now will not always be a hope is coming. And James specifically wants to give us two resources this morning in this text. Two things that we can hold on to as we face the acute suffering of life or just the mild, low manner, dragging on of life in a fallen world. Think of these resources he's going to give us in this text like a man in a desert who's given a map and a canteen to hold on to. And James is going to say, cling to these things. And these two resources that James wants to give us are the patience of faith, the gift of patience, and the prayer of faith. So let's look at these in order, and then we'll be done. First, the patience of faith. In verses 7 and 8, James writes, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The first resource God wants to give our church this morning is patience. He says, be patient. So let's just stop right here. I think it's helpful for us to recognize as Angelinos in the year 2017, that the deck is stacked against us when it comes to patience. It seems like to me, we've, we've advanced a lot in our world and technologically, we're the most advanced age that's ever lived. And it seems like every ounce of energy that we have technologically is being exerted in one direction. And that is to eradicate our lives of any need to ever be patient again, right? Like every bit of technology we have is making it so that we don't have to wait. All of our ingenuity. Patience has had a few demotions in the last couple decades. I remember the saying, patience is a virtue, right? Patience is a virtue. Well, I think patience has had a few demotions. I think it's gone from virtue to necessary evil in our minds. Like, okay, if I have to be patient, I'll deal with it. And then it had another demotion in the last like five years with the advent of Twitter and social media and whatnot. And I think it's been demoted all the way down to unnecessary evil. Like, if I'm having to wait, someone is not doing their job. (laughs) Honey, I have been trying to download the Lord of the Rings movies, all 12 hours of them for three minutes, and it's still not done. Call Comcast. (laughs) Get Comcast on the phone right now. Hello, Comcast. Uh, I've been trying to download a million gigabytes, and it's taken six minutes. You're not doing your job. What's that? You can't be here till Thursday? Well, Siri just uploaded a very negative Yelp review for me on your page. Instant gratification. We have instant coffee. We have on-demand TV. We have fast food. It's the air we breathe. You can do a lot of things, but don't make me wait, right? Currently, Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and SpaceX, is digging a hole that starts in his backyard. I'm not lying. I have, ver- I have a verified source on this. He's digging a hole in his backyard and it's going underground through LA all the way to his office at SpaceX for the sole purpose of avoiding traffic where he will be confronted with the greatest of all evils, waiting. He would rather dig a hole for 30 miles than wait 30 minutes a day. Here's my favorite one. My daughter, my three-year-old daughter knows how to use a smartphone 
And the other day I walked into my room and she has my phone precariously, precariously close to her very salivated mouth. And she's screaming literally into my phone, Siri, sing Frozen, let it go. Siri, sing Frozen, let it go. Over and over again. And Siri's saying, I didn't quite get that. And my daughter is growing incredibly impatient with Siri. She is like, Siri, get your act together. You are supposed to sing to me. I'm not going to say where she got that from, her mother. Um, And it's the air we breathe. And it has a funny edge to it, but it should also throw some red flags for us this morning because God's word, and James is going to tell us this morning, that if we are going to become the kind of people that God wants us to be, we are going to have to become a people that are marked by patience. The formation of godly character, growth in godliness, love for one another, a community coming together, a good, healthy family. They all require patience, the willingness to play the long game, what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. And we stink at this. I stink at this. Listen to these words from Pastor Zach Eswine as he writes in his book, The Imperfect Pastor, on how Love for God and love for others always require patience and cannot be accomplished in haste. I want to say it this way first. Nothing that truly matters in life, and especially in our spiritual lives, can be accomplished through haste. Let me say that again. Nothing that truly matters in our lives, and especially in our spiritual lives, can be accomplished through haste. Let me read this quote. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. First, love for God. This noble desire takes time. Forgiveness, reconciliation, coming to our senses, spiritual growth in faith, hope, and love, knowledge of and surrender to the teachings of Jesus in Scripture, growth in obedience, gentleness, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control, along with facing addictions and sins with the gospel, learning contentment in Jesus, whether we abound or are desolate, waiting for the coming of the Lord and his kingdom and the fulfillment of all God's promises for his glory and our good. The finish line for satisfying these desires can't be crossed with a 40-yard dash, no matter how furiously we try. Second, love for others takes time. Learning to walk and talk, doing math, driving on your own, along with starting or joining a church or ministry. Hurry cannot accomplish such things, much less finding true friendship, thriving in marriage, parenting, or creating integrity and reputation at your job. Learning an instrument, rising to the top in a sport, or becoming an expert in a trade do not happen overnight. But many people believe that love for God and neighbor is supposed to happen instantly. See, this is what Pastor Zach Eswine is getting at, and this is what James is getting at this morning. The formation of godly character, the mattering things, take patience. It's what James is getting at. He says, all the things that make us people who honor and reflect Jesus require patience. He says, here's a good picture of what patience looks like. See a farmer, and he's planted his seed in a field. And he knows that in time, the seed is going to give a harvest. And through the winter months, James says, he might look down at that field and say, all I've got is dirt. 
He's got a field of dirt, but he knows. He's holding out. He knows the rains are coming, and he knows that though his eyes can't see it now, a day will come when, as real as this moment, he will behold a harvest that those seeds will give. And he's saying he waits patiently, and that's what we're supposed to reflect. And I love that James is clear in this text. He tells us exactly what that harvest is. He's painting a picture of a reality for us. What is it? Let's read the text. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And then right on the other hand, he waits until the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So what is it we are waiting for this morning, according to James? What is it that we are patiently waiting for with an abiding hope? It is the coming of the Lord, which he tells us in this text is near. And I like the way the ESV translates this better. It says the coming of the Lord is at hand meaning it's accomplished, it's imminent, the plan is in action, the seeds have been planted and they will sprout, it's only a matter of time, you can take it to the bank, as sure as this moment right now, there will be a moment when Jesus splits the sky, comes again, brings his bride, his church that he gave his life for home, and we are free from pain, free from sin, free from death, free from the fear of war, free from quarreling, free from our flesh, and we are changed and transformed. And he's saying, wrap your heart around this. The plan is in action and it's coming. Put your hope there, nowhere else. See, something that impatient people struggle with, something that we impatient people struggle with is the gift of foresight, right? Like, and what is foresight? It's the ability to look down the road and say, this is the present reality I'm seeing, but I see this reality down the road and I'm not gonna live as if this is all there is. I'm gonna plan and respond according to what's coming. Now think about this, the implications of this for us as a church. If there is a real moment coming, as real as the one we're in right now, where we're looking at each other, breathing air, where we can reach out and touch each other, like a physical touch and feel reality. If there's a moment as real as this one that's coming, where everything changes because Jesus splits the sky and comes for his church and pain and suffering are no more. And we're going to be there. And the Bible paints a picture of this day when Jesus comes. It's going to be, he calls it a wedding feast. We're going to sit at a table, eat real food, drink awesome wine. I said it. And we are going to party with the resurrected Lord of the universe, free from our chains. This should inform the way we live today. This reality, when it's understood in our hearts, can give us the patience and the peace and the backbone to endure suffering. Have we wrapped our hearts around that reality? Have you wrapped your heart? Have you dwelt on it? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that he's finished the race and a good reward is in store with him as long with all who have longed for the Lord's coming? When is the last time we longed? When is the last time you sat in the face of your hardship and rather than focusing on the circumstantial changes that could fix your life, you dwelt on the reality that regardless of whether your circumstances change in the here or now, you've got the end of the story written for you and it is the coming of your king to take you home and set you free. When's the last time we wrapped our hearts around that? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 25 wrote about this moment, the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, he gives a prophecy and he says, he's writing about the feast. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, 
a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And James is gonna tell us quickly, we'll hit on this, that if we don't have our hearts wrapped around this, the thing that will, that will start to happen in our lives, if we hope in lesser things, ultimately if we put the basement level hope of our heart in something other than the coming of God, is that we become grumblers. We grumble. He says it in verse nine, right out of this, but do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. And the judge is standing at the door. Now, why does James tie grumbling to patience. Why does he immediately go there? Well, think about it. If my true hope is not in this guaranteed harvest, the coming of the Lord, eternity, but in the temporal, fleeting, fickle things of this world that I can lose like that, all of a sudden I'm thrust from security and safety and rest into scarcity and striving and wrapping my arms around whatever I can get as fast as I can. And if I don't have it right now, I may never have it because there's nothing to look forward to, no guarantee. And suddenly, if you don't have that, you start grumbling. So if the hope of my heart is in a good marriage and all of a sudden my spouse isn't fulfilling me the way I wish he or she was, why can't they get on my program? I need this, like this is what I have, this is what I, I gotta have it. If your boss is treating you bad or your career isn't going the way you want and you don't have a hope to, to anchor your heart to bigger than that, all of a sudden you're grumbling. Why can't my career, how come he got so lucky? How come she got the break? What's going on in my life? How come so-and-so did this to me? They got in the way and yet they're getting ahead. And the grumbling starts pouring. But what I want us to see really clearly is that when our hope is tied to the eternal guarantee of of Christ and his kingdom, we are invincible in a sense. Doesn't make our trials not real or not hard, but it gives us a backbone through them. But I wanna pause before we move on to prayer. And I wanna say this. This can easily become very crushing for us this morning. This can easily, like we could take this, you could hear this whole thing about hoping in God's kingdom and take it and, and wrap your arms around it and say, gotta try, gotta buckle down, tighten my seatbelt, stay in the car and hope in Jesus and be patient. I gotta be patient, even though the whole world around me isn't. I wanna say this. You might make it till Tuesday when that Escalade cuts you off and you're like, hey dude, this was my lane, right? Like, we're not patient. And I love, he goes on and he says in verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the, so he's given us an example, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's saying, take these Old Testament prophets. And I want to draw like a tertiary truth out of this. Um, the reality is that these men were incredible men of God, Job, Isaiah, um, Hosea, they were incredible men of God that will forever be enshrined in scripture for their endurance and patience. But the reality is, go back and read their stories. These were not perfect men. They squirmed. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jonah ran. They didn't get it perfect. There's only been one person that ever got this patience thing perfectly. And yet God says they endured. And the only person that ever got patience perfect was Jesus Christ himself. And he's the one we look to to make us patient this morning. He's the one we rest in in our impatient moments. We see him in the garden in patience, looking at the cross in patience, submitting himself. 
Thank God for Jesus who was patient for us this morning. Do you feel this? Do you hear this and you sense your impatience? I do. Don't let that crush you this morning. Let that throw you at the feet of Jesus to receive the grace he gives freely to us as impatient people. That will transform you. That will melt your heart. Buckling in will get you to Tuesday. So this is a resource, patience, in the hope of the Lord's coming. But secondly, the second resource, let's look at the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. James moves in verse 13 from addressing our need for patience in trials to the gift of prayer. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. He's drawing two extremes here, two parallels. He's, he's saying this, are you suffering? What do you do with that? Like, some, like when I go to the doctor and a doctor hits my knee, my knee just goes like that. You guys ever seen that? It's like a reflex I don't even have control over. And I'm like, what is happening to my leg right now? James is saying that our soul's reaction should be like that to take things to God immediately. When suffering comes and when beautiful, bountiful, joyful happiness comes in our life. And both of those things, what's your reaction to that? Like, think about when you were dating somebody and you got good news and you were just absolutely infatuated. And the first thing you wanted to do, you got to get on the phone and call them and tell them. And in that, almost it's like your experience of that thing is made full, right? Or suffering, who's the person you want to lean on, fall into? James is saying that for us and this church right here, the first person, the first call, God wants that kind of relationship from us. He wants us to long to take our sufferings and our joys and fall into him in prayer because he is our first love. He has our hearts. God wants a relationship with us. He wants our highs and he wants our lows. And then James goes on in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So just a few observations on this. Um, notice that James just assumes he just assumes that the way the church deals with sickness is through prayer. He just takes it for granted. He's saying, of course, you've got sickness in your body. The way that you deal with that is through the pastors and elders dealing with it in prayer. And the other thing that James wants to draw out here and point us to is that prayer actually works. Like prayer actually makes a dent on the environment. It actually has the ability to change the realities we're in. When we petition the sovereign God of the universe, things change. Now, before we go too far, I want to pause. I recognize that this is a pretty theologically dense section and also that it's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's charismatics in the room right now, people that were raised with a charismatic bathroom and you're like, back, background and you're like, all right, pastor, let's go. Here we go. Tell them about the oil. Tell them about the, the prayer of faith that will raise the sick man. And then there's those of you maybe with the more conservative background that are looking for the nearest exit in case the plane starts to go down. Um, look, what I want to say is this. The thing James is trying to draw out here is that we have a high view of prayer and its effective power. That it can actually change realities. That it can actually bring healing. That it actually does work. So in order for us to look at that, I want to clear up two things that this prayer of faith that James is talking about 
is not, what it doesn't mean, and then talk about what it is and what it does mean. And then we'll be done. The prayer of faith, number one, the prayer of faith is not a prayer of flawless certainty. Let me say that again. The prayer of faith is not a prayer of flawless certainty. See, many of us think we hear this prayer of faith and we think it's a prayer of absolute perfect confidence, void of any doubt, no doubt allowed in the prayer of faith. So if I'm praying the prayer of faith and my prayer doesn't work, it must mean that my prayer didn't have enough faith. And if I'm praying the prayer of faith and it does work, it means that I had enough faith, I met the mark, and I better keep that faith at that level so that my next prayer will be answered too. This is crushing if that's the reality. That is not good news. If the amount of our faith is the only way to put, us, put our prayers into effective action, that's not good news this morning. It's actually crushing. And that's actually not biblical either. In Mark 9, 21, we see Jesus and a father brings his son to Jesus and his son is a demon-possessed little boy. And he brings his boy to Jesus and he says, Jesus, heal my son. And Jesus looks at the man in love and he says, do you have faith? Do you believe that I can do this? And the man's response is basically this. I don't know. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I think I do, I have some faith, but I, don't, I wish I had more. Jesus, I wish I had more faith. Help me out here. And Jesus looks at the man and he says, now that's faith. And he heals the boy. He heals the little boy. He casts the demon out. So this prayer can't mean that we have to have absolute, perfect, no doubt faith. The prayer of faith is not prayed because it believes perfectly in the strength of its faith, but because it knows the frailty of its faith and clings to the power and ability of Jesus. Secondly, so the prayer of faith does not mean flawless certainty. Secondly, the prayer of faith does not come with a guarantee that we will get what we ask for. The prayer of faith does not come with a guarantee that we will get what we ask for. So to draw this out, can we all agree that no one has ever lived with a more perfect faith than Jesus? Can we all agree, like, if there was one person, like, front of the line, you were the most faithful person that's ever lived, it was Jesus, right? God in the flesh, so if this litmus test for getting our prayers answered was faith, Jesus should always have gotten what he wanted. But in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus prays before his crucifixion in the garden. And he says, Father, if you're willing, he knows he's going to the cross, and he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, as we all know, his request is denied. He goes to the cross, he dies for the world, in love. Jesus himself with perfect faith denied. Why? The sovereign God of the universe had a bigger plan at play. God was accomplishing something so valuable, so good, so necessary through the death of his son that to answer that request would not have been good of God. And we can count on this. When prayers that are prayed in genuine humble faith are not answered, it doesn't mean that God's not loving. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want what's good for you. It means that he sees something we can't see, that he has a bigger plan in play. And if we could see things the way we saw, he saw them, it would put our hearts at rest. I love the way Tim Keller says this. He says, God always answers our prayers the same way we would answer them ourselves if we knew everything he knew. 
God always answers our prayers the exact same way we would answer them ourselves if we knew everything he knew. God is good and he's for us. But I know a whole lot more than my three-year-old daughter. A whole lot. And I'm only 30 years older than her. What does this mean about a God who has been from the beginning before time, the eternal God? His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher. And as far as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his ways above ours. So we won't always be able to understand because he's that much bigger than us. But he is good and he's for us and we can trust that and take it to the bank. So what is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is coming to God with specific requests specific requests, believing he is able to act. The prayer of faith acknowledges its own weakness, says, I believe, help my unbelief, but it trusts God's strength and power over the situation at hand and his ability to move. The prayer of faith makes its request boldly, but at the same time, it trusts God so deeply that it knows his answer or seeming lack of one is ultimately the working out of his good and perfect will. And that when we get to eternity, when Christ comes, we will see it and understand. James is telling us that when we pray like this, humbly, boldly, expectantly, believing he can, praying that he would, God loves to answer that kind of prayer. God loves to answer that prayer. He loves to showcase his glory by answering prayers that are prayed in faith. So I want to end here. James's whole goal in this section on prayer is this. He wants us to believe and see that prayer really works. And I want to say this. This is the kind of thing that I so often hear and I go, okay, sure, that's true. But I kind of deflect it and go, it's true for you guys, but not for me, right? Like your prayers are effective. You're the ones that are on your knees, but not me. James is not saying that. He is saying that your prayers work, that your prayers are effective, that you have an ability to petition God and see him move, to see your strongholds broken, to see your sickness healed, to see your circumstances change. Petitioning God, he's saying, come to me, ask me. I would love to showcase my glory. You just have to ask. Your prayers can make a dent on the circumstances. Your prayers can change it. Look at verse 17. James says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three and a half years. That's a super encouraging verse. That's a super encouraging verse, because if you go back to 1 Kings 17 and read the story of Elijah, you'll see a man who at times demonstrated great faith, but you'll also see a man who ran in fear, who was cowardly, who questioned God, and it's saying this man, just like you and me, like Every one of us in the room, no different, was able to pray fervently for no rain and God answered his prayer and it didn't rain for three and a half years on planet earth. And James is saying that can be you. This kind of power is available. Now we've actually seen this in our church, um, specifically when it comes to healing. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember, but about eight, nine, ten months ago, we showed a video of Patrick and Ileana Griffin. And... uh, Ileana, they've they shared their trials and their struggles, and they've gone through a lot in the last decade. And Ileana's fought cancer for about nine years now. It's gone from uh, her liver to her bones. She has breast cancer. And about eight, nine months ago, Patrick and Ileana called us when Ileana was at her lowest of lows, like, like at the point where one more set of bad news might spell potentially the end, like we're giving up hope, pastors. We need prayer. Come pray for us. 
And so Matt, Craig, and I, and Jana was there as well. We got together in, uh, in Matt's living room, and Patrick shared Ileana's story with us. He had a whole presentation with pictures and everything. It was awesome. And, uh, and we prayed. We didn't pray perfectly, but we prayed with faith. We prayed specifically, believing that God was able and is able. And here we are eight months later. Ileana's, and I'm not, by the way, this is this is, this is all to the glory of God, 1,000%. But Ileana's cancer is in remission. Amen. Like significant, the doctors can't explain it, remission. Um, she's, she's up out of her wheelchair. You'll see her in the lobby after church, munching on a banana as spry as a young whippersnapper. And... Uh, and it's just a joy. And look, we could explain this away and say, well, sure, you know what happens. Like, people get better sometimes. Or we could look at this and say, God's word is true. Like, the pastors got together and we didn't, look, I didn't feel the weight of that moment like I should have, but the reality is that God was in that room with us and he heard our prayers and we petitioned the sovereign Lord of the universe who loves it when his people pray to him and he has come through. And I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what the future holds for Ileana. I don't get to know tomorrow. But I know that he did something and he wants us as a church to look at and then say, this is true, trust me. You can take it to the bank. What are you walking through? What are you waiting on? What are you up against that you're looking at and saying, this can't change, I'm stuck. What has you down? What has you depressed? Is it fear? Is it struggling? Is it finances? God can come through for you. God can change your circumstances. I don't know if he will, but I know that he can, and I know that he wants to be asked. And he can. He can. He can do it. He's the king of the world. He has it all in his hands. Nothing can stay his power. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? He does whatever he wants all the time. It's him. Do you believe that this morning? We've seen it in our church. And so as we close, I want to say this. Do you need patience this morning? Do you need prayer this morning? I know that we all need grace this morning. And when we hear a sermon like this and we feel how weak we are, how bad our prayer lives are, how impatient we can be. What we need to do is not go out and try harder. Like I said, we need to fall on our knees, look to Jesus who was patient before us. We need to hear in our prayerlessness, we need to trust the promise of Romans 8 that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints and that Jesus himself is praying for us. We need to hear him in the garden praying for us. We need to hear him praying for us on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We need to rest in the prayerful one, Jesus, in our prayerlessness and trust that he has saved us to the uttermost most. Look to Jesus this morning. Because of Jesus right now, this room is full of impatient people that struggle to pray well who also just happen to be sons and daughters of the living God, sealed, bought by the blood of Jesus, who can no one in this room can ever be plucked out of his hands. We can rest, and that kind of rest, the promise of his coming kingdom, will make this room full of patient, prayerful people whose hearts are melted by the good gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are a church that wants to submit to your word. We are a church. Make us a church 
that loves your word, that trusts your word. God, thank you for what you've done in Ileana's body. Thank you that you've answered prayer. We pray now that you would continue to heal, that you would continue to restore and remove. And we pray, Jesus, that you would bring her to full health and that this would be a story. But we trust you no matter what. Make that more and more true. And for the trials that are going on undoubtedly in this room right now, Thank you for the resources that you've given us of a kingdom that is coming, that is a guarantee. Life is short, eternity is long. And the promise that our prayer, when brought to you in faith, changes reality. That it involves the God of the universe and from that flows life and hope and everything good. Thank you for Jesus who died in our place. We look to him and no one else this morning. It's in his name, amen.